0: Welcome to He Sang, She Sang. It's super early on a Wednesday morning, but we are thrilled to be here. My name is Mike Shobe.
1: I'm Marin Lazian, and with us in the studio today is Edward Hanlon, a bass in the Metropolitan Opera Chorus. Welcome.
0: Thanks so much for having me. So we're here today talking about Giacomo Puccini's La Boheme, probably the most famous and popular opera in the history of the world.
1: Yep, it's definitely one of the like top three most performed operas ever. It's up there with Carmen, La Traviata... There are a few honorable mentions, The Magic Flute and Tosca, but this is really one of the top few most loved, most performed operas in the entire repertory. Edward Hanlon, can you
0: briefly run us through the the synopsis
1: of this opera? What's going on?
2: Leblum's a story of, of a bunch of kids in Paris who are trying to figure out what it means to be an adult, really. Um, it starts off with uh, two of them who are trying to be artists, want a writer, want a painter, and they're procrastinating. And they're, their friends come in, they have a philosopher friend, they have a singer-musician friend, and they have a good time. It's, it's Christmas. It's time to have fun. None of them wants to work. So they've conjured together a little bit of money, and they're going to go out for Christmas. Collinet, the bass, Chonard the bass baritone, and Marcello, the baritone leave, but Rodolfo cannot go yet. He has a little bit to do uh, for an article he needs to write. While he's writing that article, Mimi um, comes in the soprano and she uh, – how do you describe Mimi? She's, she's, <laughs> she's the perfect woman for Rodolfo at that moment. She is sweet and tender and beautiful and all the fire in her apartment has gone out. She, she famously, um, to use the Rent uh, term, which uh, Rent was based on Bohème, is, uh, asks him to light her candle.
0: That's the musical number in Rent,
2: right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So he does, and they they fall in love completely. Uh, And they come to the decision, you know what? There's no reason to stay in here. Let's go out. Let's all go out. So they join the other three for uh, Christmas out on the town.
0: And he does what pretty much any guy in that situation would do. When the lights go out, he finds her key and pockets it.
2: Right, right. Um, (laughs) While she's in the apartment, she's dropped her key. And so... uh, He's not too keen on her finding that key. So that's Act One. Um, They sing this amazing love duet, O Suave Fanchule. So act two starts with them all out on the town. They're going out to have, like, a big party. The, their rule before they leave is, si beva in casa, me pranzi for. We drink at home, but we eat out. Nice. And then they settle at Café Momus, where in in the book that this opera is based on, they're generally known as the uh, the four musketeers there. They have a huge party. And during that time, Musetta, who is a former flame of Marcello the baritone, enters with her current older, rich boyfriend.
0: Her sugar daddy.
2: Exactly. She, uh, I believe she goes from sugar daddy to sugar daddy is kind of her way, uh, <laughs> which gets Marcello like all ends of jealous. She decides, though, right now, she likes how Marcello's uh, acting, how he's looking, so she decides to get rid of her sugar daddy. Uh, she comes up with this plan. Her, her shoe breaks. She needs him to fix it, and her sugar daddy, um, Alcindoro, uh, has to leave and do that. Um, meanwhile all six, run off and uh, leave Alcindoro, the sugar daddy, with the bill.
1: And in the process of swapping from uh, Alcindoro, sugar daddy, back to Marcello, Musetta sings her famous Quando Men vo", this waltz that's all about her charm and seductive prowess and how when she walks out on the street, all of the men stare at her from head to foot, and that just leaves Marcello as putty in her hands. It totally works.
2: I had a director who once said, the story of this opera is trying to find warmth. Uh, and trying to stay warm. Mimi comes to Rodolfo's apartment in the first place because her candle has gone out, which means the fire in her her apartment on Christmas has gone out, and she's freezing. She comes to Rodolfo, and she finds warmth through him.
1: And even when she gets there, at the very beginning of the opera, they're all around the fire, throwing parts of Rodolfo's manuscripts and pages that he's written into the fire just to make the room a little bit warmer. You can even hear it in the music. Puccini captures some of the flames in the music itself.
2: They need each other's warmth. They can't live without that warmth.
1: There's a famous aria about an overcoat that Coline sings. Uh, He's going to sell this overcoat of his in order to get medicine for Mimi. And that in itself, this thing that gives him warmth, he's going to, to give it up to try to to make her healthy yeah,
2: not to spoil things but um It's not going to go well for Mimi. She's only going to get worse. So she dies. She
1: she does die. And it's interesting. She dies, but in a way, very quietly. There's no grand moment of her dying in this opera like there is with so many others. She just peacefully, quietly goes.
2: I think it's the most poignant moment, maybe in the opera, when slowly, one by one, everyone on stage notices that, uh, that Mimi has died.
0: So when you're watching this opera and it ends like that, how do you feel when you leave? Is it uplifting at the end? Is it is it tragic? What's the, the ending emotion?
1: I think a lot of people end up in tears in this one, actually.
2: I'm in tears uh, starting Act 3. As soon as um in the Met production, uh, the Franco Zeffirelli production, uh, we have snow in, uh, that falls all through Act 3. And as soon as that snow starts falling, I, I actually I start crying.
1: Yeah. yeah. We're talking about Puccini's La Boheme. And with us today is Edward Henlon, a bass in the Met Opera Chorus. The Zeffirelli production started in 1981, and that's the production that the Met has been putting on since that time. You want to tell us a little bit about that production and why it's become such a staple?
2: The Franco Zeffirelli Met production is, I think, the most iconic production and opera, at least at the Metropolitan Opera. It started in 1981 with an insanely good cast of Teresa Stratus, Jose Carreras, and Renato Scotto. Renato Scotto as Musetto, which is such an embarrassment of riches. Um, And it has, I think, only one year since then it has not been performed. And I I think it's so good for for a couple reasons. Franco Zeffirelli knew the Metropolitan Opera stage as well as anyone ever possibly could. And he designed that production knowing what could be done with that stage and what the people, what the the incredible stagehands could do. The, The first and the fourth acts, it's all Paris rooftops, and the entire stage is... It's a garret, and then all around it, rooftops, which which uh, the actors go off and play on. Act two is actually two different Paris streets, and it's the right scale. Act three is this incredible scene with snow falling, and so he really marshals all the powers of that stage that, that you can possibly have of this huge stage. So it's it's just the knowledge of, of what can be done. It's it's so perfectly made.
1: Why did he know the stage so well? Who was he?
2: Uh, Franco Zeffirelli was a director who had uh, directed all over the world. This production is similar to a production at La Scala, but he had done a number of productions at The Met before. Having worked there, he, he understood what you could do with it. The other side of it is... Like why it's such an amazing uh, production. I think particularly in New York, is, I mean, it's huge and it's luxurious and it's at times a little ridiculous and gaudy, but every bit of it makes sense. At no point is it showy for showy's sake. It serves the story. It serves the purpose. And so I, I think that's why it's such a, um, I think that's why it's such a successful production. The way you're speaking about
0: the production reminds me a little bit of Wes Anderson. Is it sort of that intricacy of the set design and that attention to detail? And
2: yes, and no. In a way, it has the same attention to the the small details and uh, beauty. But whereas Wes Anderson, I think, is a little you have to come to Wes Anderson rather than you go. You know, Wes Anderson coming to you and putting things in your face. Uh, Zeffirelli is big and bold, and there's no subtlety to this production, really. However, with uh, regards to details, I admit, um, during Act 2, the chorus just mills about on stage a lot. We're we're on a Paris street, so our job is to act like you'd be on a Paris street. So we we need to find things to do. And so one of those things, when we're not singing, (laughs) is uh, we look for typos in the French, and there are a few. And we found, I have found three, I just heard last week that there is a fourth typo, the <gasps> mythical fourth typo, and uh, the, the chorister who told me will not tell me what it is. So my job, when we reopen it, will be to find...
0: The unicorn of typos?
2: <laughs> it is. I don't believe it exists yet because <laughs> I wouldn't have missed it. Well,
1: it's as yet unconfirmed. <laughs> exactly, so. there you like go. like so
2: much fun to do. It's, it's so much fun, it is. It, it is so great to be on that stage for that scene.
0: So what are the typos?
2: The typos are vêtement is missing an E. And
1: vêtement means... Clothing. Clothing. clothing.
2: Yeah. So in the clothing shop, the French person who owned that clothing shop in Paris misspelled his, his shop.
1: They probably sell, like, sweaters without a sleeve or something. Just something not quite complete. <laughs>
2: exactly. In the beer and wine shop, Bière is missing an accent grave. Easy mistake to make, and I'll, I'll accept that one. And then in the meat place... Boeuf is misspelled. Um, Beef, yeah. I couldn't tell you. Boeuf is is an impossible word in French, though, because it's just a collection of vowels. So one of those three vowels in the middle of it is missing. and I don't know which one. An O,
1: an E, and a U.
2: Yes. Yes. One of them them, them went astray. One is not there. Okay.
1: So I think for a lot of singers, both principals and chorus, this is a defining opera for them in their career. Right. You've kind of arrived when you get to do your first bohème. It's a pretty special thing. Did you have that experience as a singer?
2: Well, it's the first opera I ever saw. I'm a relative latecomer to opera. I had never seen an opera until I, I started my undergrad. And I came home on February break after my first semester, and I said, it's about time to see this. I'm studying opera now. And so I went to the Met, and I saw La Bohème. It was the thing I needed to see at that moment. It was The music is beautiful, but I think what I really responded to is it is it is an opera of people. These are friends. These are people. And so I, I I looked at it and I was like, I want to do that. This is the thing I want to do. And I looked up the cast that I saw, and it was Elena Kalesidi and Ramon Vargas. And then Mar was was Earl Patriarco, who now sings in the Metropolitan Opera Chorus, and I sit right across from in the dressing room. And it was, it was just... I, your so full circle it, moment it is the full circle opera for me it was the second opera i did on stage my my second night in my first year and you get up there and and, and so how it works is you're all put backstage onto the act 2 set and then they the entire set is rolled onto the stage and so you're just getting rolled onto them at stage uh, with the curtain down And then the curtain rises, and you're on this Paris street, and the audience applauds during the singing, as soon as they see it, because it is the most amazing set of all time. And I'm not going to lie, the first time I did it, I don't think I did a bit of singing. I think I just giggled for 20 straight (laughs) minutes.
0: We are talking about Puccini's La Boheme on He Sang, She Sang today, and our guest is Edward Hanlon, a bass in the Metropolitan Opera Chorus. So, Edward... Once you open it initially for the season, and, uh, and you've had some performances under your belt, do you guys keep rehearsing it?
2: No, not very much. In fact, this is an opera that we do at the Metropolitan Opera every year. Uh, this is now my third season in the chorus, and we've performed it. I'm, I think I'm on number 39 of <laughs> performances of Bohem here at the Met. Wow. And so we rehearse it three times before performance on uh, opening night.
0: And so this opera, I guess, is sort of ingrained in your DNA. You don't have to to go back and revisit it when you brush it off in the fall?
2: We always run through it musically once or twice. It is, is—it's even though it's a, a famous opera and always done, it's, it is very difficult musically. It's, there's so many voices happening at once. So it, it is tricky. So we always, as a chorus, we go through it a couple of times just to get used to it again.
0: How does one become a member of the Metropolitan Opera Chorus?
2: I had worked, and most of my colleagues in the chorus... Um, had worked as solo artists and principal artists uh, before coming here. I, I did a, an undergraduate degree at McGill University, then went out to University of Michigan, did a master's degree, and um, was starting to make my way into the principal artist scene when this audition came up. And I, I jumped at it. it. It seemed like an exciting thing. And I sang one thing actually at 9 o'clock in the morning, like it is now, and... Three months later, they called me and they said, "Uh, we'd like you to join the full-time chorus.
1: And there's something interesting about being a full-time chorus member, which is different from principal singing, which is that you will simultaneously be performing and rehearsing different operas at the same time. Is that right?
2: It's a pretty schizophrenic job. Yesterday, we started the day with rehearsal for uh, uh, Rossini's Barbara Seville, and then we moved on to music for Puritani, Rosalca, Idomeneo, Carmen, and then did notes on Romeo and Juliet and Nabucco. And then last night, we did our uh, penultimate performance of Nabucco. Today, I have to run to more Barbarous rehearsal then a costume fitting for Puritani. And then we have Romeo and Juliet tonight. So we're, we're, we're constantly jumping all over the place. How many artists are in the Met Opera Chorus? The Met Opera Chorus is eighty. Full-time artists, 20 per voice part. And then we have a changing roster of extra choristers. For a show like uh, Die Meistersinger, which we did two years ago, I think we had up to 120 choristers. So that would, um, you know, another 40 choristers, maybe more. Um, so it's, it's constantly fluctuating. Not all operas use the full 80 people, but um, 80 is the, is the general number. Do you have time to practice for yourself? Do you you get to go into the woodshed? Um, Yeah. I mean, we we need to. Particularly in in your first few years in the chorus, there's a lot of music that that we need to learn that we just don't have time to. Uh, My entire life basically has become note cards. I have note cards of of every opera we do. I I think in my back pocket right now I have um, the act one finale of Puritani, and I just carry them around everywhere I go. You know, whenever I have a break, take out, like, memorize one note card. Um, even if I'm at the gym between, between sets uh, lifting, I, I'll memorize uh, music. As for singing, it is difficult uh, to find time to sing, and even more than time to find vocal time to sing, because there's a certain amount a, a voice can can work in a day. It, you get tired, and so I, I can't spend my off time from rehearsal singing, very often, um, when I do I, I I love to take that opportunity and work on my own rap. i I still do some solo things uh, in the summer. I try to do at least one solo role just to keep my myself you know going, but there's not a lot of time no
1: that's more than a full- time job that sounds like, so
2: yeah, it sounds like some days you're in there at ten and
0: you're out when the when the show's over.
2: and sometimes if it's a long show, if it's Meisterzinger, we're out of there just after midnight, usually. <laughs>
1: Wow. It's okay. Who needs sleep? Especially for singing.
0: Do you have a pre-show routine? Favorite meal? Is there something that keeps you grounded before the day starts?
2: No. Because we do anywhere between five and seven shows a week, if if, if it was a meal, it would be the meal I had every single day, uh, basically. <laughs> True that. Touche. Touche. <laughs> um, I actually kind of intentionally try not to develop those kind of things because you don't want to get reliant on a thing like that. You don't get reliant on a thing I have to do before I sing, because then if you don't have time to do it, if something disrupts your routine, then it be, it could become a problem. Um, it, might, it, it you don't want the disruption of the routine to disrupt the singing.
1: I went up to the Met to speak with soprano Eileen Perez, who's singing the role of Mimi, but she also has the role of Musetta under her belt.
3: Musetta gets all the meat and potatoes of the feast and the champagne. I mean, (laughs) she comes in on a horse and carriage in velvet for days, red dress, and everything is big, you know, her pearls, her gorgeous hat. So, Musetta was the larger than life, and you could never overdo it. Um, I think that with Musetta, the character had to be still coming from the heart and still real and not a character, so to speak. Or at least at some point, we need to see her pull off the mask and deal with Marcello in a sincere way, which, you know, I think that was a lot of fun for me to just play a very strong woman with no issues. You know, she's just very practical. This is my life. This is how I like things. I love you. You can't deal with it. Well, deal with it, <laughs> you know, yeah. is how she, she does it. Um, and the one moment we see Musetta, you know, the sincerity of heart or the fear, really fear of of anything enter her mind, is when Mimi is sick.
1: Yeah, and her, um, her generosity and her humanity come pouring out in, that, in Mimi's really moment do. of need.
3: They really do, and I think that that's the gift of Puccini. I think that, you know, he, like many composers— finds ways to heighten and elevate a character or or give you a glimpse of their transformation per se. I mean that's what we all go to the opera for in in a way for those big transformative moments. Yeah. So it's not just about Quandam and vo in other words. Right. Which it is tough. I was taken aback because uh I've never played the role of Musetta anywhere. And I was not ready for the amount of people on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera. And it's big. Café Mamouse is, you know, I think three levels. Horse and carriage, like I said, we have a donkey on set. (laughs) I think there's someone dressed as a bear, right? So it's big. The Met Kids chorus is there. Everyone's on stage. So for me, Quandam & Vaux, I thought, oh, my God, hold it together, Perez. Like, you know, I just thought take a big breath and go.
1: It's funny because you have thousands of people in the audience who you know will be there, but it there's something about having that crowd on stage that mm-hmm. changes something for you.
3: Completely it changes the acoustic around the the space. So, you know, I'm used to being on scene and and singing in a hall for 2000 to, you know, 5000 people or um which is the job normally. Um, but yeah, being on set with then what feels like a thousand people, <laughs> you know, it's it's it was a degree of like, oh my gosh, I'm nervous, I'm nervous. But this is the diva moment. I should be so happy right now. And I was so scared. Everyone's at
1: Musetta's <laughs> beck and call.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fun. It, I had a blast with it. So, Musetta
1: is the larger-than-life character. She's uninhibited. She has tons of fun. She's also very in touch with her feminine power.
3: Very powerful.
1: How about Mimi?
3: So, what I love about Mimi, and I have to say, after playing Musetta, I came back to Mimi with a fresh look on her. Mimi is a role that every lyric soprano, when we start studying, we know about Mimi. Because our favorite lyric sopranos have sung that role for their whole career. And these ladies who, when they sing this role, they just leave a stamp on it, you know. Yeah. I looked at Mimi as not only more simple of a character, but I woke up again to all of her thematic music. Which is mi piaccion quelle cose, you know, or as she comes into the da 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 vorrebbe to give the, you know, to ask for would you light my candle, mm-hmm. when she meets Rodolfo, and so I went back to the music, to to listen carefully and to make sure that I don't get caught up on, you know, the interpretations of all the ladies gone by. That I just get back to the text, back to the music, and most of all in my own shoes, in her shoes, you know? So I think that that's also developed the Mimi that you'll see now.
1: I'm at the Met speaking with soprano Eileen Perez about her role singing Mimi in La Boheme. So La Boheme is one of the most loved, most performed Mm -hmm. operas of all time. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is about this show that keeps people coming back for more? Why do they love La Boheme so much?
3: I think it's the music. I think that if you, you know, really sweet lady in South Philly always told me, if you want to find your heart again, if you feel like you're cold to love, go to Act Three and Four of Laboem, and you'll find it again. I think that, you know, love has a way of breaking our hearts, and I mean, it's. <laughs> I I always think of that scene in Moonstruck, and it's funny. Nicolas Cage I heard was on, you know, in the house the other night, but I, the Moonstruck, you know, was that. Film that was a love letter to the Met, using La Bohème and using the story of these two characters, you know, meeting each other. And Nicholas Cage has this one scene. Where he's like, "We're not perfect, you know. The sky is perfect. The stars are perfect. We're here to love and break our hearts." And <laughs> and, and I think that's why we love opera and why we love art. And we, we want to feel. We want to be moved. We want to see beauty. We want to dream and think that it's possible. And then when our lives fall apart. It's just you go back to it because you see the pieces or you want to relive or there's always that charm. I think as human beings, we, though our hearts break, if you just keep going, there will be something new. But I think that's part of the great human experience, that there is another tomorrow, that there is a possibility if we can get out of the darkness, if we can help each other get out of the darkness. And I think that's what Mimi does, not even trying to. It's so lovely, isn't it? It is. It's more human.
1: (laughs) I know it's incredibly unfair to ask you about any single moment in this opera being a favorite, but I'm going to anyway. Is there a moment in the music that puts your heart back together when you need it most?
3: Oh, my God. That's a great question. There's one chord that puts my heart back together again. And it's, I'm not singing, it's just a pause when I'm singing, it's a rest. But it's, um, after she is is brought into bed in the fourth act, um, she says, Buongiorno, Marcello, Shonar Colina, Buongiorno, chord. That chord that happens right there, it's such a relief, it's such a joy, it's that... I barely want to come in and say tutti qui, but that's exactly what you would say. Oh, you're all here. Everything I've ever wanted this moment, I thought I just needed to see Rodolfo, but you know what? I needed to see each and every one of you, and you're all smiling. This is the best. That chord, I think, puts my heart back together. Um, But scenically, I think the one moment that I always look forward to being in my dressing room and listening to the duet with Marcello and Rodolfo at the top of Act 3. I love it so much. Why? Um, Oh, it's just so beautiful, the way the voices combine and the way they swell and the way they're harmonizing. It's such a lovely duet for these guys. It shows so much love for the women that they're crazy about. And it shows their strong bond as friends.
1: Yep. Yeah. Well, your, your parents immigrated to the United States from Mexico. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, you became the first Hispanic recipient of the Richard Tucker Award. Do you have the sense that your career helps pave the way for other young Hispanic or Mexican singers, that it helps them to know that if they want, all doors are open for them?
3: That's what my feeling is. I think that that's what art ought to offer. I think that that is what the point of art is to offer. I mean, we are trying to create an experience and a bridge, a safe place to then intermingle no matter what your background is and who you are, you have a story. You come from somewhere that's deep and relatable and human. So therefore, that's the only entitlement you need. And there's no boundary or bars or walls to suffocate that because the human spirit is bigger than that. It's beyond that. So in a way, that is my hope. And now what I find is that we're all building an audience and you know, you have to be available and interested in in appealing to that. I think, and it's been for me, it's been a great way of living off stage and not being all caught up on stage and always about the career and always about the role and yep. and and for me, it's been through education. I try to address that way of empowerment and and helping others in that way too, because yep. that's also how I got on this path was through education, was through great teachers. So. I say keep going. I say keep giving and I say for us artists keep reaching out and keep access open.
1: I couldn't agree more. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you so much, Eileen Perez, for speaking with me today. Mm. And we look forward to hearing you in the broadcast on Saturday singing Me Me and Labo M.
0: It is time for some YouTube picks. These are our recommendations for you to get even more familiar with Labo M. Edward. What did you bring for us?
2: So the YouTube clip I brought is actually not a scene from the opera itself. Maria Callas did a series of masterclasses at Juilliard where she worked through a number of the famous arias in the repertoire. In this clip I found they were working on Vecchia the coat aria, the bass's coat aria it's such a a great aria and is such a formative aria for me and and the role of Colinet is such a formative aria for me that it's it's really amazing to see somebody working on it and it is maria callas at her at her most interesting and best she actually sings quite a bit of it and works with the uh, the bass who's who's doing it and she sounds fantastic the best thing you can see about it is is how she works the text how she understands the music so intuitively, it's just, it's incredible in, in, in even just a master class context.
1: Did so. it change the way that you approached that aria?
2: I was listening to it last night, and I couldn't help, I had to take my score out again, and I, I just started singing it. I started, so I had, like, a little lesson last night from Maria Callis. <laughs> oh, that's great. I was like, wow, this is pretty great. And uh, my wife, Tanya, who's a singer also, she was there, and I was like, oh, that sounds pretty good. And then I was working on <laughs> something, and it was like, the high note, that that sar. I was like, oh, that's, that works there, yeah. Well,
1: if Tanya approves, then uh, you know you're in good shape.
0: <laughs> I can't wait to see that. Maren, what did you bring for us?
1: So I've got an excerpt from a movie that was made of this opera in two thousand eight, starring tenor Rolando Villazón as Rodolfo and soprano Anana Trepko as Mimi. The clip is of Rodolfo singing Kejalida Manina, the aria about her freezing little hand. He he's totally smitten with her and he offers to warm her hand and introduces himself to her. There are hundreds and hundreds of recordings of tenors from across the world singing this aria, but I really love the way that Villason sings it uh, and acts it. He's got this wonderful youthfulness, and there's a real simplicity to his acting. You just totally believe that he is in love with her. Anna Netrevko, unfortunately, doesn't sing anything in this clip. But what, she's
0: just standing there?
1: She's, she's standing there feeling loved and adored. Uh, But she really captures Mimi's sweetness, her sort of angelic quality in this perfect way. And it just sounds gorgeous.
0: Mm. You can check out both of these YouTube videos at the He Sang, She Sang show page. We've got them linked there. Uh, That's at WQXR.org.
1: And while you're there, leave us a comment. Tell us what you thought about the show. We'd love to hear from you.
0: If you liked what you heard, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever it is you get your audio.
1: Our guest today was Edward Hanlon, a bass from the Metropolitan Opera Chorus. Thank you so much for being with us, Edward.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York, WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian.
2: And I'm
0: Mike Schaub. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.